And good morning, everyone, and welcome to another edition of The Other Side of Midnight, that magical time between dusk and dawn, when just about anything can happen. And on this show, many, many times, it actually does. Well, there's a lot of news going on on the planet tonight, but we're not going to take a lot of time because... A lot of it has to do with Afghanistan. We're going to be dealing extensively with our resident historian, Dr. Uh, Rick Spence, tomorrow night with uh, Afghanistan and where it is and why it is and why it has somehow come to loom so large and crucial in American foreign policy and military policy and a whole bunch of other um, uh, legalisms. So we're not going to spend time on that tonight. I I will, however, uh, talk to you about one thing which is very newsworthy, which we should be paying very close attention to, particularly if you are anywhere along the Louisiana Gulf Coast. There is a major hurricane, Hurricane Ida, which is bearing down on the Gulf Coast. And before it makes landfall tomorrow afternoon, just a few hours before tomorrow night show, uh, it's supposed to make landfall as a Cat 4. Now, a Cat 4 has winds above 125 uh, miles an hour. And, in fact, I think I'm kind of underestimating that. It's been a while before since I looked at the, uh, at the scale. But it could cause enormous problems for the Gulf Coast. So anybody uh, listening to us tonight along the Gulf Coast, get out of there. There's going to be a 10 to 15 foot storm surge. What's a storm surge? Well, if you live on the Gulf Coast, you know what a damn storm surge is. If you don't, uh, it may be too late to learn. It's basically a huge wave of water pushed up by an approaching hurricane, particularly on the right-hand upper side of the storm, what's called the the, uh, dirty side, where the motion of the hurricane combined with the winds of the hurricane, which are rotating counterclockwise, uh, add, no relativity here, and so you get really enormous winds, you get an enormous uh, pile of water pushed up in front of the moving storm, and when that reaches shallow uh, coastal waters, it crests as a wave, and in this case, along the coast uh, tomorrow night, it could rise as high as uh, 15 feet. There's no way anyone can survive a 15-foot tidal surge, so get out of there. There's no way you can stay there, so get out. Uh, We'll give you another update as we get further into the evening. But this one could be very deadly. This one is very large. And the weirdest part is it's going to make landfall tomorrow evening exactly. I mean, this is exactly... 16 years to within a few hours, an hour or two, I think, of the landfall of Katrina 16 years ago. So this is uh, this is an important one. You should be paying careful attention, certainly to your local weather forecasts, the weather channel. But if you're along that coast, for God's sake, leave. You cannot survive. We're going to be talking tonight about a planet millions of miles away, which does not have a lot of water at the moment. It's the planet Mars. But what has been found in the last few days, 
and I'm probably going to go out on a limb here. I haven't checked with everybody uh, who's part of the program tonight, uh, but that's going to kind of happen in real time. As we go through the morning, I have not checked with everybody about their opinions of this rather extraordinary discovery made by the Ingenuity helicopter, the so-called four-pound little four-foot-wide, that's the width of the rotors, uh, tech demo helicopter that the unmanned robot Perseverance, the Perseverance rover, the $2.7 billion rover that NASA sent successfully to Mars back uh, last February on the 18th. Um, we don't know whether it's found other things, but this 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 discovery, this amazing serendipitous discovery is only one of three that I think we can rightfully attribute to the Ingenuity helicopter as part of the current mission. And these discoveries, remember there are three, and we're going to go through them tonight, and then we're going to link them with other discoveries from some of our uh, Enterprise Imaging Team investigators, some of them more recent, some of them made a couple, three years ago. The whole part of science is you take a whole bunch of individual pieces, individual data points, and you try to put them together to tell you a story, a story of what happened. With Mars, given that we have no ground truth, given that we're not there, given that we can't just run outside and grab a sample and bring it back in and analyze the heck out of it, um, everything is being done by remote control. As you know, part of the uh, um, mission of Perseverance is to um, kind of cache samples, meaning they do drilling, they put the materials from their drilling into these little, you know, stainless steel um, sterilized tubes. They will put the tubes in a place somewhere in, in Jezero, and then in future years, maybe five years from now, when uh, NASA and the European Space Agency send another spacecraft back to Mars, the idea is to land back in Jezero to basically find the cache of little tubes of sampling that uh, Percy has drilled and stashed away, load them on board a return unmanned robotic spacecraft, and fire them up to rendezvous with a uh, unmanned mothership in Mars orbit, and then send them on a uh, multi-month planned trajectory back to Earth sometime maybe five years, maybe eight years from now. The, the time frame is uncertain because the funding is uncertain. And tonight we're going to talk about one thing or one set of things that we're really, 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 really hoping the JPL team is planning to sample and include in their cache of of rocks from Mars because it doesn't quite look as if it's rocks. And without further ado, uh, let me introduce the rest of our gang this morning. Um, actually, I have to do a little scrolling here, so let me do that. We have with us tonight, um, let me get to the right list. We have uh, Ron Gerbron, 
who of course is our generalist and who's going to be talking about some very interesting ruins uh, and ruin-like formations on Mars that he's been looking at. Over the last couple, three months, we're going to have Holger Eisenberg on. He is an imaging specialist. He's on the uh, West Coast currently of the United States, up in the Bay Area, working in uh, Silicon Valley with computer systems. And uh, he is avidly interested in NASA and other space uh, mission imaging, has managed to bring some order out of chaos in terms of the correct color of some of the NASA imagery, particularly going all the way back to the Viking missions, and we might touch on that briefly tonight. Then we have uh, Ruggiero, who is uh, British, who is a podiatrist, and whose reason for joining our merry band is that as a good citizen scientist, many years ago, he spotted something on a NASA image and proceeded from his background, his medical background, to draw a sketch. Well, the sketch turns out to be of something that nobody, except maybe this team, would ever have expected to find on the planet Mars. We were going to have Kinthea with us, but uh, she has some issues with her family upcountry that had to be taken care of on a rather short time, time fuse, so we will not have her. We will have some of her data, and I'm going to try to do it justice as we move through the morning. And finally, last but not least, is uh, Keith Morgan, who was our IT expert, our sound guy, our engineering guy. And oh, he also discovered the Morgan Curve at Sidonia on Mars. And he called me up at the crack of dawn this morning. Well, it's kind of crack of my dawn. And he said, you've got to see this video. So a little later in the program, we're going to talk about, with the example, in his section of Radio with Pictures, this rather intriguing video which appeared in the last day or so um, and which has very interesting features but it also comes with some baggage and we'll talk about both in the uh, uh, next three hours. So without further ado, um, let me let me see, what should I do at the top here? I probably should um, address some of my imagery so if you're new to the show, we have this section called Radio with Pictures, so you can kind of follow along on whatever device you're listening to The Other Side of Midnight on. And if you go to our URL, theothersideofmidnight.com, click on tonight's banner, which says rather boldly, <laughs> Ingenuity has made an astonishing discovery on Mars. Actually, by the time uh, uh, Kinthea had posted the graphic I prepared. Uh, there were two more that I found, so it's really three discoveries. And so we're going to start there. This is part of a series of images taken by the Ingenuity Tech Demo helicopter um, just a few days ago on Flight 11. Remember, they originally expected to spend about a month with, I think, between three and five flights. It may have been four flights. And now we're up to number 12 because about halfway through this period of time when they were looking at the results and the fact that they even were able to fly remotely by computer control, an autonomous helicopter, a drone in essence, on another planet, 
um, they kind of realized, which I think is kind of for public benefit, I think they always were thinking this in the back of their minds, well, if this damn thing works, maybe we can use it to help the Perseverance rover mission. And so now that's what they have done. <clears throat> They've sent this little four-foot-wide flitter out across the reddish Martian sands on jaunts up to, you know, like a thousand feet, and it sets down uh, in a totally new space, and they let it sit there for several days while it charges the batteries, and they analyze the previous navigation images and the color images from the second camera mounted on the side of the bottom of that little uh, box of uh, um, highly um, Kevlar line material. It looks like bright gold. It's mylar, actually. Um, and so poking through that mylar is this color camera. And on the color images from the last flight, the folks over at unmannedspaceflight.com in fact, I think the a guy named Fred Tau, uh, Frederick T-A-U, that's his last name, he found something and has posted a series of images, really incredibly interesting and frankly astonishing, and uh, a, a discovery that comes with such interesting implications that I want to make that the kind of cornerstone for our discussion this evening because... Frankly, and I'm going to find out because, again, as I said, we have not run these analyses past each one of us. We're looking at this data separately. And so you're going to kind of eavesdrop on a live bull session amongst us, uh, the four or five of us who are here tonight, as to what we think we're seeing, where we think it may have come from, and what NASA should do to confirm um, some really interesting ideas for the source of the material which led to the unmannedspaceflight.com discovery on Ingenuity's uh, color image from Flight 11. So without further ado, let me direct you to the other side of midnight.com. You click on tonight's banner, uh, which as I said earlier, says rather boldly, Ingenuity has made an astonishing discovery on Mars. Click on that banner. That will take you to the guest page. Under the guest page, you'll see uh, a, a, a kind of a headline that says to listen to the show. Under that, you'll see uh, a line that says fast links to items with my name, Ron's, Holger's, Ruggiero's, Kinthea's, and Keith's. Click on my name. That will take you down to my section of radio with pictures and I want to direct your attention to item number two. This is the wide angle uh, somewhat color corrected um, image color image taken by Ingenuity a few days ago. If you look at the very by the way you can click on these and they get much bigger um, and as you can see this is a processing from uh, um, um, uh, Thomas Apierre, who was a uh, civilian citizen scientist working on image processing in France. He does really good work. If you look at this on the big screen, you know, click on it and make it big, you'll see that it's been uh, corrected. 
it's had the vignetting corrected, meaning the brightness toward the center of the raw images due to the way the lens and the uh, CCD and the uh, off-the-shelf camera that NASA used for the Ingenuity color camera um, uh, kind of ready-made. Um, he's corrected out all those imperfections, and you can see this very elongated, kind of stretched-out, rubber-looking image, which is what happens when you, you know, take out all the distortions of the original wide-angle camera being used to take the pictures. And up along the horizon, you'll see uh, the distant crater rim. You'll see the sky in the upper right in that kind of corner of the bizarre-looking uh, uh, undistorted image. At the very bottom in the middle, right above the uh, caption, where it says Ingenuity Flight 11, you'll see this this shadow of the helicopter itself. This is the actual scaled image taken at altitude uh, with the camera looking down. It's a very wide-angle camera. It's more than 90 degrees, so it can look not only directly underneath the spacecraft, it can look to the horizon you know, more than 90 degrees in one shot, as you can see. Well, just to the right, to the upper right of the dark shadow of the helicopter with its four little landing legs and the blurred motion of the blades and the dark shadow of the electronics box, which is slung underneath uh, those blades, you'll see to the upper right at about the two o'clock position, uh, about two widths of the helicopter blade shadow to the upper right, you'll see a weird little feature on the ground, which is, well, it looks like an X. Yes, you heard me right. It looks like an X on the planet Mars. Crazy, right? Now, the first thing anybody might think of is, good grief, is this a hieroglyph? Is this something left by the ancient civilization or civilizations on Mars that we've been pursuing for several decades? And the answer is no. And how do we know it's a no? If you look at item number three, this is now an enlargement um, of the same shot. On the lower left, you can see the shadow of ingenuity with the blades, which even though this is a very high-speed shutter, remember these rotors are spinning at something like 2,400 RPM. That's 2,400 or more revolutions per minute. So the fact that the uh, motion is not stopped uh, at the framing speed of this camera for this shot is totally unsurprising. But if you look to the about two o'clock position, about two per uh, uh, ingenuity widths of the blades away, you'll see that enlargement of this very obvious, very dramatic, very symmetrical, obviously real X on the planet Mars in Yezero Crater. Um, well, if it's not something that we found on Mars, if it's not something that um, uh, was uncovered, let's say, by the rotors blowing away the, the surface dust and sands and exposing something underneath, 
and we'll get to why that's not a tenable explanation in a moment, then what else could it be? Well, in any science, there's things that are obviously apparent, then there's things which are like two or three steps away through a logic chain, meaning if this has happened and that's caused that to happen, then this should happen and that's what we're seeing. That that kind of logic, okay? So, if you now skip down to item number four, uh, back out of that, remember all these are clickable, so you can click on them and make them much bigger. Uh, back out of that, go down to item number four. This is now the black and white nav cam images. Remember, Ingenuity carries two cameras, a black and white and a color camera. The black and white, which looks straight down and is capable of multiple, you know, hundreds of frames per second, is basically used by an onboard algorithmic navigation system to go from point A to point B in these remote computer-controlled flights. So there's nobody sitting at JPL with a little joystick, you know, flying the drone. And if you go, if you click on that black and white series of three images, click on it, makes it full screen, uh, you can see in the bottom right, it's uh, processed by uh, uh, Francis Tauber again. The image on the left is taken just after Perseverance, I'm sorry, Ingenuity, lifts off the surface. Image number two, moving from left to right, is obviously the shadow of Ingenuity. Remember, this is taken around 1 o'clock local time, so the sun is almost directly overhead. Mars rotates at about the same time as Earth does, so um, it moves 15 degrees, <clears throat> give or take, across the sky uh, per hour, which means it's within 15 degrees of being kind of very high up in the zenith of the sky. So the shadow and the sun glint from reflection from the surface is straight underneath uh, Ingenuity as it's flying across the surface. And then you can see um, image number three. Um, <clears throat> it's taken a little higher. It's moved a little more. And But you can see, particularly um, uh, against one and two and three, there's this very light, very sharp-edged mirror image of what is obvious when you look at the comparison carefully, uh, the shadow of the helicopter blades on the planet Mars. Somehow imprinted on the surface now, we're going to have a very interesting discussion um, in the next segment because we're uh, coming down to the bottom of the hour and we have to take a break. But the physics of what we're seeing and the physics of what we could be seeing and why this inevitably in almost anybody's planetary system and or universe uh, brings us inexorably to the serious, serious possibility that this is this is in fact a, a an imprint of some kind of 
very sophisticated technology. All of that is the cornerstone of tonight's program. So let's go back to Radio with Pictures. Let's get out of number four. Let's go to number five, okay? And I'm watching the time. If I run over someone, please tell me. You may wonder what I'm doing posting a side-by-side image of the Shroud of Turin on Earth. The Shroud of Turin is this ancient Middle Ages artifact, a large piece of linen, which almost burned in a fire, which had to be repaired, which has several uh, repairs on it of new linen compared to the original cloth. On the cloth, the so-called Shroud of Turin, which you can see represented by the image on the left, remember, click on these and they become full screen, compared to a photograph of the inverted image on the right. Why am I using an image of the Shroud of Turin to relate to images of potential ingenuity helicopter blades imprinted on Mars? Because whatever the process that did the imprinting on Mars appears to be similar to the same process that gave us the image of a crucified human being on the Shroud of Turin, regardless of whether or not it is the actual image of Christ. Now, I've had people on here over the last several years who investigated the Shroud of Turin, and one of the most surprising things they discovered when they started doing serious in-depth research, you know, decades ago when the Vatican would actually allow them in with scientific teams and instrumentation and the ability to excise tiny, tiny pieces for uh, radiocarbon dating and other sophisticated tests, the one thing which stood out in that original 19, um, I believe it was in the 1970s, this was all done, was the fact that when looked at at a micro scale, the image on the Shroud of Turin is a projected radiant image, meaning it is a shadow image. On the left-hand side, where the energy, in this case we'll assume light, was brightest, the image on the on the fibers of cotton became darkest. Just the very tops of the cotton fibers have this extraordinary um, burn. They've been oxidized. The cellulose and the other organics have been uh, chemically altered by the application of some kind of energy, uh, which produced a radiant. Um, shadow-like image which was a negative of whatever did the original energy projection. And many, many, many hundreds of years later, when photography had been invented and the shroud was subjected to early photography, uh, photographers found two astonishing things. One is that the image was a negative meaning that the dark areas on the shroud, on the left, correspond to the highest amount of energy, which when you make a photographic negative and then reverse it, which is the image on the right, turns out to be the brightest uh, object when you make a positive 
out of the negative image on the shroud. Again, we're not talking about who it is, who did it, how old it is, any of those things. We're just talking about the mechanism of creating an active image, which, when you look at it, turns out to be a negative of the actual image process carried out on the surface of the shroud. Okay, so now what we want to do is we want to uh, go to item number six, and we're about to run out of time here. So I'll tell you what, I'm going to leave you with this to kind of just kind of hold in your mind. Think about how you would create on the planet Mars a negative image of the blades of the Ingenuity helicopter on a desolate landscape tens of millions of miles from the highest example in this solar system currently known of high technology given that there is no, well, we'll get into that. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland, and we shall return. As you continue to work on yourself, the tribe comes forward. They'll come right to your door. So just keep doing the work and it'll come together. Yep, as you increase your frequency, then you become more mature in your manifestation abilities. Then your other higher senses and gifts come online and then you have more power to make your world different and better and how you want it. And so that's why working on yourself is so important because then you're going to create the reality that you want rather than get sucked into the dystopia that's being created by the negative or shadow side. We're becoming uh, Renaissance men and women where we have multiple skill sets and we can dance from science into art and we can use both sides of our hemispheres and we can realize how much we have to really offer and uh, grow into. And this is what's happening now. This is where we're headed, into a really beautiful place. So we can rejoice in that despite the fear, despite what it looks like on the outside. This is how disease transforms. The mess in the chaos is necessary in order to see what you have before you so you can clean it up and just make decisions to change your reality.
If you don't see it, how do you know it's there to even be changed? Or if you ignore it, right? Then how can you make the differences? You can't. So the mess is before us, accept our mess, and now know that that's part of empowerment to be able to see and to be able to transform it. Hi, this is Amanda Vollmer, and I was on the other side of the news, and I really enjoyed my time discussing deeper topics and really getting to the heart of truth and the things that matter in this world and what we are doing and why we're here and and what we're heading toward. I really recommend listening in and and learning, uh, expanding your awareness and your knowledge. It's important and these are the times to do it and we're being asked to pay attention and to challenge ourselves and uh, think beyond beyond the box. Welcome back, everyone, to the other side of midnight. For this August 28th, 2021, a lot going on in the world, but even more important things are going on off the world. And if our projections are on point, which we'll find out in due time whether they are, these two extraordinary events, both on and off the planet, are going to come together probably sometime this fall and uh, it will then be as my grandmother used to say uh, Katie bar the door so what are we talking about on Mars well we're talking about um, confirmation from a variety of unmanned NASA missions the most recent being this extraordinary little helicopter which by some almost magical means is flying brilliantly across the Martian surface acting now as an operational scout and a few days ago it found something so amazing again not reported officially by NASA shame on you guys but by a citizen scientist at the uh, Planetary Society's uh, Mars forum called uh, unmannedspaceflight.com by one individual named Francis Tower. And what Francis discovered was that after the Ingenuity helicopter had sat on the Martian surface for several days, because they don't fly this thing every day, they fly it and then they take like a week or two to analyze the images and they compare what it saw from tens of feet. I think the last flight they went up to something like almost 40 40 feet above the ground, which gives you an incredibly good panoramic view. And then they put their their, um, color imagery into three-dimensional algorithm programs, which give them um, raised three-dimensional modeling of the surface, where you can see the rocks and the sand dunes and the areas where the uh, uh, Perseverance rover might get trapped. Do not want to go into sand dunes with your wheels. So it's, they're using it now, not as a tech demo, but as an 
active, active scout. And a few days ago, as they were lifting off from their 11th landing to fly, um, I'm sorry, 10th landing for flight number 11, when they left the ground, they looked down. You want to go back to the other side of midnight now, to those images, radio pictures, and they saw that behind them there was this remarkable negative image of the shadow of the Ingenuity helicopter somehow imprinted like the Shroud of Turin on the sands of Mars. So let's talk about some physics here, okay? And I want to I wanna bring everybody in. Uh, we, as I said, we've got Ron Gerbron, we've got Ruggiero, we've got Holger Eisenberg, we've got Keith. Um, uh, I'm going to kind of open this up, so I'm going to make a few more statements, and then I'm going to throw it open to the to the floor. Because to me, I think this could be potentially the most singular important discovery of the Ingenuity mission. Not a Perseverance. You know my uh, prejudice is there. I think it was the actual uh, dome which is Perseverance's most amazing uh, discovery, Archigover Jezero. And there is strong debate among our members tonight as the reality and existence of that structure. I'm going to say right now, I think the latest discovery adds compelling new evidence that the dome, in fact, is real. In which case, I will tell you now exactly how. Because if you go back to... By the way, I want to say that our music tonight for the uh, the bumpers is going to be from Ennio Muraconi, who was the brilliant Italian uh, uh, orchestralist and conductor and composer who has done so many scores for so many mainstream movies, uh, including a couple devoted to the planet Mars. This is from Mission to Mars, and I thought this would be kind of appropriate to play uh, as we're talking about this material tonight. Okay. Without further ado, let me let me talk some physics here. Okay, you want to go back to the other side of midnight.com. You want to go to my item number six. Why do I have a an article about photochromic lenses? Because beginning in 1960, the Corning Glass Company, the same folks that made or make Corningware, remember the high-temperature Pyrex pipe plates and other kitchen paraphernalia uh, of the 1940s and 50s, the same folks who cast the 200-inch mirror blank uh, out of Pyrex for the 200-inch uh, uh, telescope on Mount Palomar, the folks who make Corningware, those folks, they developed something that was extraordinary and incredibly useful and now has all kinds of unseen uses all around the earth. So in 1960, they invented this. Which, what did they do? They put a light-sensitive material in a melt of glass. 
And when they brought it out and let it cool, and they fashioned it into lenses, meaning like, you know, eyeglass lenses, they found that it would lighten and darken repeatedly when exposed to light and then when exposed to darkness, which is the absence of light. In other words, the photochromic lens material, the active material, the metallic material suspended in the glass reacted to the photons of sunlight and would basically produce a set of sunglasses that when you put them on inside, they'd be clear. You go outside and they darken. And why do they darken? Because the light from the sun triggered a photochemical reaction between the metallic ions and the glass in the lenses, and they became less transparent to light. They go back in the shade, and in a few minutes, they're back to being transparent. What does this have to do with Mars? Well, if you go back to item number three, my section, that X, and you can also go to item uh, number four, which is from the unmanned spaceflight folks, uh, Francis Tauber, you can see that, in fact, the strange-looking X on the ground on Mars appears to be a negative of the shadow of the blades of the helicopter ingenuity itself. In other words, light is dark and dark is light. Why would the shadow be light? Because obviously, if you put something above this particular patch of Martian sand and you inhibit the light from the sun uh, high overhead from striking the sands or soil or dust, the material gets brighter. It gets light. Whereas the material still exposed to sunlight, like at the bottom where the, where the X crosses, which of course is where the blades cross, um, it's dark because it's exposed to full sunlight there. So whatever's going on in these Martian sands is creating a photochromic duplicate of the process that Corning patented decades and decades ago to put in business, you know, uh, skyscraper windows, in sunglasses, in car windshields, in all kinds of uh, technological improvements now for this reversible darkening and lightening that is called called uh, photochromaticity. Now, we also have materials that change color when they're uh, ex exposed to sunlight, and then when the light is removed, they revert back to clear. So whatever's going on on the Martian surface, if as, as the little robot, as a little Ingenuity helicopter was sitting there for, I forget how many days, it was at least a week, could have been more, um, <clears throat> where sunlight was not reaching the surface at noon, directly underneath the shadow of the blades, the surface lightened. Where the sunlight was still reaching the surface, the, the surface was darkened because it was being exposed to light from the sun, which, by the way, at Mars is only about uh, 
uh, one quarter of the strength of sunlight at noon on Earth. But, you know, you're dealing with a thermonuclear furnace, which is putting out, you know, thousands of lumens. So it, it doesn't really matter that it's only about one quarter of the energy. It's obviously enough to have created this extraordinary photochemical change in the surface of the planet sitting for all those days under the motionless blades, under the shadow of the helicopter blades on Mars. Now, why am I making such a big, big deal of this? And we're going to bring our our panelists in in a moment. Because as far as I have been able to determine, and Ron and I have looked very extensively, uh, Ron actually did more uh, uh, digging uh, from the... uh, uh, academic papers that I was able to in the time you know before the show, neither one of us has found any citation, any mention, any historical reference, any note at all that up until 1960 when Corning produced the first photochromic glass, we found no mention of any other natural materials, either inorganic or organic lying exposed on the surface of the earth, which will change reversibly like what we're seeing happen on the planet Mars. What does that tell us? Well, I'll tell you what. I'm not going to give you my conclusion yet. I'm going to bring in everybody. Ron, Ruggiero, Holger, Keith. Who wants to open this um, discussion on the mysterious zero-graphic X on the planet Mars. Holger? I was at uh, this photochemistry effect was also uh, one of my first guesses. Uh, Hello first. (laughs) Good evening or good morning, yes. Yes. It's a nice evening here. The village-like setting of Silicon Valley with uh, crickets chirping in the background here. So should we go oh, to your? Hang on, hang on. Should we go to your section for your images? Uh, not yet. Uh, okay. Because I, I was also wondering first. Uh, the, my first impression was uh, something like a photochemistry effect, uh, uh, but uh, especially because it was such a short time where it, uh, where the the helicopter was sitting at that location. It was. Uh, sitting there for 11 days, actually, from Seoul 153 to 153 to 162 for the starting on the flight 11, 162. So for 11 days, it had the chance to do something on the surface. Mm. But what? Hang on, hang on. Let me stop you there, because remember, Mars rotates. So it wasn't 11 days sitting in sunlight. It's 11 days where you have day-night, day-night. So the actual exposure time to produce this sharp shadow, which is when the sun was directly overhead above ingenuity and the and the shadow rays would be imprinted straight down on the surface of Mars, you know, a few inches below those blades, was only a few hours. Because remember, Mars rotates about 15 degrees per hour, give or take, and so... You've got morning sun, you know, it, it, the sun climbs up in the east, it gets higher and higher, but as it's at an angle, 
the sunlight is easily reaching the ground under the blades. So whatever, this is telling us some really interesting physics, whatever occurred to create this negative imprint with the shadow of the blades being light and the exposed ground on, on outside the shadow being dark had to happen in just a few minutes. Otherwise, it would have been hopelessly smeared and we wouldn't see a sharp geometric figure of an X at all. So this tells us that whatever the material is on Mars that is producing this photochromic effect, and again, I want to underscore, nothing natural has been found anywhere on Earth that does this. Any photochromic materials have to be produced by high technology. Well, whatever's doing it Not on really, Mars. Not really. In Matthew Brady's days, they use salt. Uh, as part of the uh, photochromic effect to be able to make the plates on glass that they yeah, used to and, make and the Yeah, and negatives. you know how many hours they had to expose those salts and then they had to subject them to some kind of chemistry? It, yeah. It, so it, took, it took some days and days. Right just that. using salt. It, if, this, if this had water on this planet, then there's probably still salt deposits still here and probably some other kind of chemicals that we haven't taken into effect uh, that we probably making this effect like that. Uh, I'm, I think this is highly compelling and we need to look at it. But, of course, they're going to ignore it and just keep on moving. Yeah, but, uh, I, I, wait go, a second. Go, go ahead, Ron. Go ahead. I, yeah, I'm sorry to jump in, but I, I think I found a uh, another feature of this that, that kind of ties it together because there's something else, and I'm glad Holger's here. Uh, there's a, there's another a related process. The... Uh, Photochromism is a whole bunch of different things, and uh, there's one called piezochromism, uh, which has to do with the change of state, that is, it looks different, uh, of things due to mechanical stress. And that kind of change is not reversible. All the photochromic uh, effects that we're talking about that rely on chemistry, they revert back, some quickly, some not so quickly. Uh, and the only the only other avenue of that is, and it doesn't really have a name, but a sort of a subjective photochromism, which was one of the first things noticed that started people investigating on this. Somebody, and I won't use the names because I've never heard of these people, but uh, except for one, Fritzy, Frit, uh, Fritzy, somebody named Fritzy reported in 1867 <clears throat> that he had noticed that uh, a solution of orange-colored tetracine. Uh, bleached out and but in the dark the color came back and you know so there were people playing with this in the 19th century just the chemical okay just so uh, we keep our, our physics straight here tetracine is an organic liquid yes yes no yeah. it doesn't it doesn't contravene anything yeah you but said. you have to, you have to the, but, but you have to point that out because there are no organics on the surface of mars how do we know this ultraviolet light Organics are broken right. down into very basic things like CO2, carbon monoxide, you know, maybe a few little more complicated, um, uh, like methane maybe, but you're not going to get, you know, things that organic chemists played with in the 19th century in terms of photochromaticity on the surface of Mars. So the best, right. the best model for a natural material would be, as Keith said, a salt. The problem is 
that in those early photographic experiments where they tried salts, they had to expose their plates, meaning their their uh, uh, you know carrier for the salts, exposed through a lens of a camera. They had to expose them to the light uninterrupted for days, days to make an impression that then had to be developed through the application of other chemistry. You have none of those conditions in Yezero Crater on Mars. None. Right. That's why I introduced the um, piezochromism. Yeah, but piezochromism uh, implies you have some kind of force. There was zero force applied to the surface. How do I know? It sat down there. Yeah, but it sat down on four little knobby legs, which would produce round spots if it was pressure, if it was mechanical stress, not the shadow images of the two four-foot blades, which are suspended when it's sitting waiting for its next flight at least a foot above the Martian sands. Nothing touches. Right. Well, see, I think that the chemistry of the dome material, which is what we're ultimately talking about here, is that this is, uh, this is a sand that is the ground down remnants of pieces of the dome that have fallen to the ground. And it's not going to be, as you pointed out earlier, it's not going to be evenly distributed. It's going to be like puddles after a rainstorm. You know, it's just going to be here and there and everywhere. And um, ingenuity happened to set down on some. And so all of these things apply because it's, you know, it's a, it's just a lightweight material. And we got what one color picture. We don't have a lot of reference things here, but it's, it's well, we no 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 no. We have we have one color, but we have a lot of black and whites. We know right. we have redundant black and white. We know it's real. We also know since oh, it's bo- real. since both the guys at UMSF and I have looked through all the other Ingenuity images, this is the first example of this kind of effect that we found in all the flights of the Ingenuity helicopter which means this material must be patchy. Uh, There's probably more of it in the floor of the crater. It'd be incredibly, incredibly, you know, like one in a million odds if Ingenuity landed on the only patch of this material in all of Yezero, (laughs) which I don't think. Oh, yeah. But it seems to be rare in that it was discovered for the first time uh, at the beginning of Flight 11, after the spacecraft had sat there, but it's very important to realize it's not sitting there in constant shadow and dark because the sun is moving, Mars is rotating. So the actual sharpness of the image indicates that when it lifted off at around noon, the imprint under the blades, the shadow, turned light because it was lack of photons that called the materials to, to lighten, that happened very quickly. In other words, the response time of this material is very fast, and that's why we don't see a continuous blur of lightness, but sharp-edged, you know, negative images of the blades because the, 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 the time it took to create the impression on the surface has to be relatively short, uh, minutes compared to hours. Holger, what do you think? Still, it's burned in. Still, it's burned in. Because if it was, uh, I agree. The chemistry, if there's, if it's a chemical process, it has to be rapid. It has to be rapid. Uh, and 
but the things with the most rapid reversals are the hardest ones uh, for the chem to, chemistry in the lab to come up with. And there's certainly nothing lying on the surface here on this planet that does that. That's what we were looking for. But you would get uh, a lot of ghosting, except the ghosting would not. In other words, you'd get as the sun moved through the sky, you would get a you would get a uh, an image a little bit to the left, a little bit to the right. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, but the shadow, the shadows would be would be blurred. What we're yeah, seeing, but those wouldn't persist. They would go away. Yeah, but we don't know. Well, but material. we don't know what's called the relaxation time of the photochromic yeah. material. And I'm saying, based on just the NASA data we've got, which is this one color image, beautiful, and the black and whites. <clears throat> and Holder, I'm going to come to you when we come past the top of the hour so we have under, under uninterrupted runway. But it seems to me that we can see something about the physics in whatever this material is, it has to have a very fast response time in minutes as opposed to hours. Because if it was hours, there'd be that smearing because the shadow moves as the sun changes position in the sky, as Mars rotates, and the helicopter blade shadow, you know, skitter across the ground in a very predictable geometry. We don't see any of that. We see these sharp images of the blades like it was photographed just moments before it took off, which is astonishing. Okay. Uh, indeed, it's, it must have happened instantaneously, especially because uh, on the black and one black and white image, we see uh, the shadow imprint of the legs. Even as mentioned, that is uh, surprising, and they are only half a centimeter thick. That cannot be uh, cannot have taken more than a minute, even. Well, considering light travels mm -hmm. in straight lines, <clears throat> and you're about twice as far from the sun as we are, meaning the sun is half the size, the rays of light coming from the sun are almost parallel, which is how you get those sharp shadows. But the sharpness of the shadows indicates to me that the reaction of the materials to do this is very short, uh, minutes or maybe even less, which right away says that whatever created this material is well in advance of current terrestrial photochromic technology. Why? Because it takes minutes for current photochromics to lighten and darken. And if you lower the temperature on Earth, the photochromics take much longer in a non-linear process to lighten and darken on Earth. So this is telling us quite a bit of physics about this amazing imprint, which we will pick up when we come out the other side. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland, and here is more Morricone, Mission to Mars.
Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out. Thank you.